This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On the last episode, Kwaku Nornu from ThePassionatePug.com explains his Facebook blueprint that gets him to six figures of revenue. On today's episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that uses video ads to power their $4.7 million business. In this episode, you'll learn how to run surveys using social media advertising, how to use samples to promote your crowdfunding campaign with PR and influencers, and how to create hyper-targeted ads on Facebook. Today, I'm joined by Brayden Moreno from Robo3D.com. That's R-O-B-O-3, the number three, D.com. Robo3D empowers creation with a growing line with 3D printers, materials, and content, and was started in 2012 and based out of San Diego, California. Welcome, Braden. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. I'm excited to be here. Nice. Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about your store and the the, the printing guess, products that you sell through your store. Yeah, uh, interesting story, actually. We started this in college. We went to San Diego State University, and uh, my business partner was, his mechanical engineering class was to build a prosthetic leg. That was his project, using a 3D printer. And he was using a big, expensive machine, and it sort of segued into him building his own 3D printer from scratch. And um, when I found out about it, I had a, another company at the time, but you know, I could have used 3D printing to help build some of my prototypes early on. So I realized, wow, this technology is pretty phenomenal. Um, it could help a lot of people with building businesses and ideas. And I immediately just gravitated towards it and we started building our first product from there. Nice. So you guys met through your other company or how did you guys meet? We met through college. So we were actually in the same fraternity at San Diego State. We knew, you know, hung out a lot, knew each other, knew what we were working on. Um, actually had tried to work together on some other things in the past that didn't work out very well. And uh, when we came across 3D printing, we knew uh, we were onto something big. Nice. So you mentioned that you already had a, the company at the time while your co-founder, your business partner was working on this uh, 3D printing uh, thing that he was working on. Uh, what, what was it that you were working on at the time? Uh, well, so this was my third business endeavor. My first one was a watch business and it actually took me about a year and close to $8,500 to get my first prototypes together. So I, I knew how expensive and how time consuming the process was to get prototypes. And um, when I saw the 3D printing side of it, I was like, wow, I could have literally developed this from scratch, printed it for you know less than $100 and maybe a week, couple weeks of my time. So it just, it, it just opened my eyes quite a bit. And I had one of those light bulb moments and I said, hey, this is something that, you know, if I can help other people, especially because entrepreneurship is so big now, if I could help other people, you know, diminish the process of prototyping quickly and easily, then um, I think I can have a bigger impact than just trying to start multiple companies myself. Mm. So you had this watch business going already and you realized that what he was working on was the future of prototyping to help create new products for entrepreneurs. Did you jump right into working with him then or how did you transition or were you running both companies? How, how did you transition into working together with your business partner? Yeah, he was doing it uh, you know, for his senior project and wasn't really you know, going down the road of it being a business and 
I, you know, obviously saw what he was doing. And I always like to say I had that kind of Steve Jobs moment. If you've seen the movie where you see it and it just, you go, whoa, this is, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when I saw that and when I communicated with him, I said, we should turn this into a business. And, you know, we kind of came together and decided to make our first machine together. So I pretty close to just left the other business, uh, you know, gave it to my business partner, um, left it because I, I really just saw an opportunity that was going to be much bigger in front of me. So, mm. and when you were making this decision, did you have any second thoughts at all about, because you already had something going, right? I'm not sure how successful it was, but oftentimes we hold on to things that are already making progress and, yeah. and are, it's kind of scary jumping into something brand new. Like what was going through your mind when you were making this decision? Yeah, most definitely it was. It's something you always think about, right? You always are wondering, hey, am I leaving something that could potentially be the best route for me? But at that time, when I saw this technology, I just, I knew there was something missing in what I was doing. You know, I liked the watch business. I liked selling watches, like designing them. Um, you know, it had a cool element to it. But for me, when I saw 3D printing, I was like, I can have a much bigger global impact with this technology. This is something that's growing exponentially is something that's going to really help in, you know, multiple areas, including manufacturing and prototyping, but other areas as well. And it just was kind of a no brainer decision for me. I didn't really have to think that much about it. Um, I, d- I just knew, you know, I was like, let's try this out and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he, your business partner at the time, your business partner back at the beginning, he was already developing the product already. And you were more on the kind of sales and marketing side. What was the kind of breakdown between your partnership? Yeah, it was actually, there was three of us that originally started. It was him and another guy. Now there's only two of us that own the business, but they were both working on kind of the functionality behind the machine. I came in and, uh, you know, worked a lot on the design of the machine and the name of the company and, you know, really put the business together. And, uh, and that's kind of, that's how we all played it out. So they were working on the development side and, you know, I was more turning it into a company. Makes sense. Yeah, I think that there's this uh, not not necessarily issue, but there's this um, when you have a company where you have the people that are developing it, working on, and then there's the other other side of the company that's working on building the business up and maybe working on the marketing and sales. That that part almost comes in a little bit later, right? The the actual sales yeah. engine behind it kicks in later. Did you like? Were you able to do a lot at the beginning, or like what was the? You know, how do you balance that when when there's people that are like you're saying developing the actual product and then you were putting the business together. What were you focused on early on? Yeah, Felix, I'm going to be honest with you here. Uh, the cool, I, I kind of the crazy thing when I speak to entrepreneurs and entrepreneur classes and things like that is that none of us were really by trade engineers. So, right. you know, one of my partners was a bio engineer, but not the mechanical engineer that you would think of when you think of a 3D printer. So we didn't have these big backgrounds of engineering. So we all had to pitch in to help this thing kind of come to fruition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and we used a ton. I mean, people always think you got to go get a big degree or have a bunch of schooling or, you know, something, some type of background that leads you down this path. But we were just really passionate about building a product. And we just went to Google. We went to YouTube. We went on forums about people building kits and 3D printers. And we we really just did it all ourselves from scratch. So it it was a fun you know, collaborative effort by all of us. And, you know, even in those early days, I was, you know, putting together a lot of the linear motion systems of the machine and, um, you know, figuring out about all different types of stuff around engineering as well. 
Yeah, for a highly technical product like this, you know, I don't know anything about 3D printing, especially not the, the mechanics behind building a 3D printer. Yeah. But it seems like a very technical problem, right? It's a, it's hardware you have to build, software you have to build as well. And like you're saying, you guys didn't have a background and have a formal education in all of this. You weren't. It wasn't daunting at any point where you're thinking like, man, somebody could come along, some some company could come along that knows way more about the technical details of this and just crush us. So you guys didn't have that fear. No, not at all. It was such an emerging tech category and it was just really a wild, wild west of opportunity. Uh, you know, we looked at it, we looked at the other companies that were out there. Um, a lot of the machines that were out there at the time, honestly, were sort of these erector set looking styles of machines mm-hmm. uh, and these kit builds and just very open. And so what we kind of tried to do is we looked at the market and we said, there's an opportunity to create some, we always call it some sex appeal in this market, um, just because no one had really created this fully out of the box nice looking, ready to go machine. And so that's where, that's what we were building. We were building the kind of the consumer 3d printer for everyone, if you will. And, uh, at, at a affordable price point, cause a lot of the machines at the time were thousands of dollars. So we had a tough mission on our hands and, you know, I, we just worked on it every single day. It was just nonstop perseverance to get this thing working. And, um, you know, we avoided our friends trying to get us to go out and party with them and do all this just because we were, you know, so maniacally focused on finishing this, this first prototype. Right. And when it is an emerging market and there's not much competition out there, there's also not that much data about what people actually want. And the, the, the pro of being in an emerging market is that you can be first to market and then reap all the benefits of that. But then, like I was saying, you don't have the data that you need to kind of guide the design, guide the marketing behind it. How did you, yeah. how did you deal with this? How did you know, how did you find the guidance necessary when it's such a new market? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you just look at other markets in, that are in similar parallels, if you will. So we looked at smart electronics, you know, even smart home type um, products and, and followed a similar path along that in terms of design and things like that. Now, what's, what's kind of interesting in some of the stuff we're doing with our new smart machines is we're starting to be able to collect data. And what we'll be able to do with this data is make a lot of different decisions. Like what are people 3D printing? Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of, and then, you know, using that data, we can then deliver content to consumers and get a better idea and kind of project what we're building and why we're building it. Um, do we need to make a printer that's faster? Do we need to make one that's bigger? Um, you know, we can start determining these, these different feature sets based on, you know, the use cases of our actual customers. So we, you know, one of the cool things we did early on too is we, we actually did surveys to a bunch of people that were in the industry using social media advertising. So we would do these surveys and give gift cards away, like $50 gift card. And we, we had a, a list of questions about features that they wanted. Do they already own one? Are they looking at one? And we targeted people that were, you know, somewhat familiar with 3d printing. And, you know, we used that data to build our first machine. So we sort of built a feature set based off that, that initial data. That, that's awesome that you're able to do all the surveying and targeted surveying. But talk, talk to us a little bit more about this. I think that this is a data that a lot of people need to where they would like to survey people, but maybe they either don't have the time or they don't have the, the access to, to reach the right demographic in person, that is. Uh, tell us, talk to us a little bit more about how you did the surveying using uh, social media advertising. Yeah, you can do it. Actually, it's a lot easier nowadays, too. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, you know, I would always recommend people if they want to get data, if they're building a product, to do something as simple as, you know, if you want to do Facebook advertising, that's probably the best route. Build a simple video um, because video view, viewing videos, is, you get a lot better 
um, click through and viewing rate and cost. So you can, I mean, you can get video views for a cent uh, view. So I always recommend do the video. We set up something as simple as a survey monkey uh, survey for free. And we said, we're going to basically choose someone to win a $50 Amazon gift card. Uh, we got hundreds of applicants just filling out this quick survey and it gave us all that data for a $50 gift card, which can be a lot less expensive than it would be if you went into a company that actually does surveys or anything like that. So for the cost of $50, we were able to generate huge amounts uh, of information for us that was a lot, that allowed us to make certain decisions early on that ended up helping us, you know, launch a successful Kickstarter campaign and build our first product. Nice. And did you, did you, how did you know what kind of questions to ask in, in this survey? We were, we were already, this was about, I don't know, this was probably four to five months into us even working on the product and, um, you know, doing a, a ton of research online and just looking at every 3D printer under the sun and looking, we bought uh, one industry report, we ended up getting a discount on this industry report and we bought that. So we were just, we were really reading up, researching and looking at the industry. And so we knew quite a bit about it. So for us making the questions were, were fairly easy at that point. Um, we saw the feature sets, we kind of put them side by side and built sort of graphs and we're like, wow, there's opportunities here. Like no one's built a bigger build platform, for example, at a price point of, you know, X. We were able to kind of create these relations that um, then helped us with our questioning, which then helped and led us to like actually building our product. Nice. And did you do this multiple times or did you just do this one survey once and it was good enough to go? This one survey we did at one time. So um, I think we got close to like 500 people that ended up filling this out. And that was enough data for us. We're on the right path and what we're building now. Very cool. So now I want to take it back to the beginning where you, you recognize that there's opportunity here, that there's a market that was growing, that there was a business potential based on what you saw that your business partner was already working on. What were the, the next steps to actually turning it into a, into a business? Like what did, you guys, what did you want to focus on, let's say, the first six months of the business? Yeah, so the first six months was honestly us building our product. It was just trying to get... You know, we got the concept, we got the ideas, we knew what we wanted to do. Um, we started working on like a logo and just trying to kind of build this, the sim most simplistic process at the least amount of money to get us our initial prototype of the product. Um, once we got that, I, I would say that was about a six to seven month process of doing that. Um, you know, obviously, if you're building different types of products, it's a lot easier now with outsourcing and things like that. But for us, we had to build it from scratch. So once we got that first prototype together, it was, you know, I mean, obviously a great achievement for us at that time. We were like, cool, we got our first product. What do we do with it? Do we go raise money? And it just led us down the path to Kickstarter. Um, there was other prod, uh, products in 3D printing that had done extremely well on Kickstarter. We knew the market was hot for it and excited about it. I mean, we were looking at analyst reports and they were under predicting the market in terms of like, they probably almost, we talked about this today, like they would have been fired under predicting it that much. <laughs> so it was like severely under predicting the market growth and which is not something that ever, you know, you have to do early on. I would say just spend the least amount of money to get your first product together and test it in any way possible. And our test was crowdfunding. Nice. So let's talk about the crowdfunding then. So you launched on Kickstarter. Your goal was a hundred thousand dollars ended up raising almost four times that at $382,000 from almost. That was our second one. Oh, was your second so our one. Yeah, our first one was 49000 uh, was our goal, and we raised 649000 
Wow, nice. Okay, so let's talk about that one first then. So what kind of preparation went into that, that Kickstarter campaign? Did you guys do any kind of um, prepping or just launched it and, and waited to see what happened? No, we did. We, you know, it was funny. We always like shoot for the stars, right? So we, you know, we knew we didn't have a big budget to spend on creating a really professional video. Uh, luckily at that time, you know, Kickstarter was relatively new. I mean, there was some pro- uh, products that had done extremely well and it was getting some recognition, but you could get away with building a kind of a homegrown video. It's a little bit different now, but depending on the product, you can still do that. We, we were just had a, a blast filming this video. So we set up these scenes and I remember the funniest thing we did was, you know, if you've watched product videos, you've seen like these beautiful 360 shots of the product, um, you know, kind of spinning um, super slow and beautiful and the light hitting it perfectly. And we went, <laughs> we wanted to get one of those shots of our products. So we went and got one of these really cheap stools from Ikea and I sat the product on the top of it. If you can imagine this in your head, if you can close your eyes and imagine this, I'm literally under the stool while we have the camera just <laughs> slightly above me so you can't see me. And I'm like slowly rotating this, uh, the stool to get that 360 shot. And if you go back and watch these first videos, it's hilarious. But we actually did. It ended up turning out pretty well. So we built a really homegrown video. We got a lot of cool pictures, um, built our campaign page out. I would say that took about another month to do that. And, uh, and we pressed the launch button, I think in late December of 2012. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if you want me to go on. <laughs> it was, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's say, so you, you launched it and did you, did you have to promote it anyway? I mean, I'm looking at this now, the first Kickstarter and oh, $650,000 practically. Did, did it require any push from you or like, how did you guys get this thing rolling so, so much? We started to do some some small things. We started to build a social media page and things like that. We're getting some interest um, from people. So we had that kind of going, but we didn't really do much pre-launching. Like I said, nowadays, I would I would recommend completely the opposite if people are wanting to build products. I always recommend like if you have a small product that you're starting and you're not either selling it on Amazon or you don't have a ton of funds to bring it to market. I mean, crowdfunding is the best possible route. You don't have to give away equity and you really prove your concept. That's why I use it as far as like a proof of concept platform. Um, nowadays, I would always recommend, you know, spend a little time building your page, build your audience, build some excitement around your product, um, get feedback early on and, and build a really good page. And because and, the minute you click launch, you want to have a huge upside. You want people buying that product, kicking it off and it, you know, continuing to get momentum from early on. But when we did it, it was so new. There was not a ton of projects on or campaigns on Kickstarter. So we were le- we knew we were going to leverage the Kickstarter community that was already excited about 3D printing. Mm, yeah, the demographic is definitely there already. It, it, these are people that want to to be to be the, the the first kind of beta test of everything. So I think yeah. that was a perfect market for you guys. And they wanted cool new tech products. That's what they were looking for. And you know that was what Kickstarter was about early on. Um, they've since gone to a ton of different categories, but. We were a cool new tech product and a cool new category at a really good time um, to launch a Kickstarter campaign. So that helped a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you were saying, the, a lot has changed from back when you launched. It looks like uh, uh, many years, like probably four or five years ago, and you've launched a new Kickstarter not too long ago as well. What, what, what did you find, find that uh, changed the most uh, between the, the many years between those two Kickstarter campaigns? Yeah, I've done, I, I launched four for the watch business and I've launched two for this business. And, um, you know, this most recent one was the most difficult to, to understand. I mean, we already had built a huge community. 
Um, we had tens of thousands of social media fans and followers and people interested in our products. And um, so we got, we were able to build a really big excitement for the new products. We had talked about them for a year. Um, so when we were talking about doing the Kickstarter campaign, everyone was really excited and kind of chomping at the bit to get access to it early on. So we, you know, we kicked it off extremely fast. We got to 150,000 within hours. This is your second camp, your, your second campaign for, for Robo 3D? Our second campaign. Yeah. So it went, it went extremely fast. A lot of our previous customers had bought, we did some things on the strategy side. Um, I don't know if I, if I probably would have redone, you know, like we set, I think too small of early access rewards because you can set how many people you, you call them early birds for people that are like the first people to get your product. I think we set too low in those amounts. We should have set more and given people bigger discounts. Uh, but it, it just went really fast and then it kind of extremely slowed down and we had to do a lot to, to reach out to press and, um, you know, get people to talk about our products. And unfortunately at the time, it's always a good thing if you're doing a Kickstarter campaign for anyone out there listening to have some products, some extra products to send out to people, um, PR people, influencers. Um, it's a lot easier to get them to write about you when they get to test your product, because especially now, I mean, there's been so many crowdfunding campaigns that have failed. So, you know, having, you know, a prototype of your product there that you can send to someone that they can try out and use, um, says a lot about it and, you know, more press will want to write about it if you had that. We didn't have that at the time, so that didn't help in our favor very much, but we ended up still doing really well. Um, super happy with the campaign and, you know, we've been able to raise our million dollars for the company on, on Kickstarter. So it's been, it's been good for us and, you know, moving forward, I don't, we might not go to crowdfunding anymore for new products, but definitely good to go back to the platform that helped us start our business. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So you mentioned that one of the things that you would go back in and do differently, even for the second campaign, was that you set too small of an early access reward. Can you say a little bit more about this? Like, what did you? What What is an early access reward, and, and and why did you feel like you? I guess did it. You why you why do you feel like you should have done it differently? Well, so when we launched the campaign again, it wasn't for us to raise money to fund manufacturing. We already began to manufacture our products. For us, it was to give the people that helped us start our initial company the best pricing possible on the new products. So we wanted to give them early access to get the products before everyone else at a phenomenal price point. We, you know, you don't know what to expect. You don't know if it's going to go really well or if it's not going to go extremely well. I mean, we had an idea it was going to go well, but you, you get to set what's called your, most people do these early bird rewards, which is like the very first people that buy your product get the best possible discount you have and you usually cap it at a certain amount um what ended up happening is you know we already had this big customer database but we did our early birds that only had about 50 units and when that sold out and it went to our next tier which was a higher price i think a lot of our customers that unfortunately because that sold out in minutes and so a lot of our customers that didn't get in at that early price were upset Mm. that they didn't get that early earlier price and then you know that ended up leading to you know potential issues of them not buying the product or you know them just being upset that they had to pay more money so it, it it's just it's tough you know you, you never really know you kind of just go with what you think is going to happen and you know we under predicted how quickly it was going to take off early on yeah, I'm looking at your I think um, your first Kickstarter campaign here and you have a ton of uh, 
pledging tiers on this one. Um, I'm gonna look at the other one too. You you have a lot of you don't have as many on the second one. Was his conscious decision like what? How do you decide what should go into how many I guess tiers you have and at what price point for each tier? Yeah, those the first campaign, all the tiers we had were based on further shipping dates out. So you know we had tiers that were shipping within this two month time frame, and then a tier that would ship a little bit later. So we didn't really change much on the prices. It was more, hey, you're just going to get your product later if you're in this tier. Mm-hmm. For the new one, we kind of we all talked about it. And we said let's let's sort of cap the entire campaign off. We don't want to overdo it in the beginning. We just want to give. The people that want to come back that maybe backed our first campaign or our customers that are on our product now, let's just give them access to the new machines, you know, at a certain capped, I guess, amount. And you, we got through over what we were hoping to get in terms of unit sales. So uh, just it worked out really well for us. And, you know, we, it, we didn't have any need to grow additional, you know, rewards or anything like that. Okay, cool. Now, I think what we hear all the time in the crowdfunding and Kickstarter community is that it's a saturated market now. It's much harder to be successful. What do you? Yeah. What kind of opportunities do you think have come out of this? Like, are there other new opportunities that didn't exist before? Like, where do you see uh, the opportunities? That what, what kind of opportunities do you see people that people should go after in this kind of uh, I guess stage of the crowdfunding space? I, yeah, so I, I totally agree. I think it is oversaturated now. I think. What ended up happening is Indiegogo and Kickstarter got into this battle and then they all started kind of like unlocking their platform to the public. Mm. Um, I think Kickstarter started to, which I like about them, is they've kind of stepped back and said, hey, we're going to be a little more focused on making sure we're only getting the highest quality products um, launching on our site. So I think that helps the community that's following all the new products they go. They feel a little bit more like they're getting the best quality stuff. So hopefully that'll shift kind of back into Kickstarter's favor. And, the, and you know, if you get on that platform, you're going to have much better success just utilizing the people that are already on there buying products. Um, but I, I don't know. It's an interesting game. You, you know, you have to market a lot more. Um, I think there's many ways to do that now. I think social media advertising is being heavily underutilized. Um, you know, like I said, we're do, doing video advertising and getting one cent views on videos, which is just, I mean, it's just astronomical conversions at that rate. So um, you can do some unique things to drive traffic to your page. And if you have a good product and you portray it well and you're excited about it and the video is entertaining and it keeps attention of people, um, then you have a huge chance of it being shared and um, you know the ability to go viral is right there. Got it. So in the, in the first campaign, after raising that $650,000, were you guys like blown away by this? Or were you shocked? Like, What was the emotion going on within the, the I guess, the founding team after as a, such a successful Kickstarter? Yeah, it was, it was funny. I got to tell you, it was, um, we launched a few days after Christmas. And when we pressed the live button, you know, we were all obviously had tremendous amount, <laughs> immense amount of anxiety about it. We're like, okay, let's press it. And we're kind of all sitting there and all of a sudden within less than a minute, I think it was 30 seconds into it, we got a backer and it was like $599 or something. And we all called each other because we, we had this like funny thing where, Hey, if no one like backs us early on, let's get on here and like spend our own money to start, mm. you know, getting some, some, uh, rewards in there. And, so someone backed us and, you know, we called each other and we said, Hey, was that you? Was that you? No one, no one actually did. So we were like, wow, someone actually just 
bought one of our products early on and it just kept going from there. It was just this, uh, within, I think the first night we were up to close to $40,000 in, um, wow. unit sales on there. Yeah. And so it just kept kind of rolling and we were just, I couldn't even sleep. And it was the most addicting feeling to get a notification or a ping on your phone that another backer, you get these things called backer alerts. If you <laughs> launch campaigns, so anytime someone backs your project, you get a little email that says like backer alert, so-and-so backed your project for X amount of dollars. And we just kept getting these alerts and it was such a cool, addicting feeling that, you know, let us know that all this hard work that we put in to build this first product was actually going to turn into something turn into a business and we knew that we were going to be able to build this product out. And, um, so a lot of excitement around it. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I think that that's, uh, that, that first sale, that first backer, I bet is, is one of those uh, rushes that, that you can maybe never achieve again. Cause it's so amazing. Yeah. You know, some stranger internet trusts you, especially with the, like such a large or high price point, like your product must've been uh, exhilarating. Yeah, it's cool. So one of the uh, other benefits of launching a Kickstarter that I've heard from a lot of campaign creators is that the the feedback that they get is invaluable as well. People are just commenting on their project. Did you guys get any, you know, I see a lot of comments here in the first one, I think over 1,200 comments. Did you guys get any feedback during this process that actually altered your either design or your marketing, like that you changed, that made you make changes in your business? Well, so we did... You know, I would say the first campaign, as it was a success on paper, it was a, we had a very tough time bringing that product to market. We said we were going to bring it in three months and ended up taking nine to 10 months to get our first ones out. So when you look back at the campaign threads and the comments, a lot of them were like negative about people being upset that they weren't getting their product. It's really hard to manage all the people that are upset. So, you know, obviously we offered, hey, we'll give you discounts and things like that, but Early on, there's a ton of people that kind of come to the forefront that are total advocates of what you're doing and what you stand for and your company and your product. And so no, no question, a ton. I mean, we actually hired people that backed our project that work with us now um, from the Kickstarter campaign. So we tons of amazing influence happened early on and people that, you know, helped us with building out. You know, like, if, for example, we wanted to build out this heated platform. So we had people that were helping build out a heated platform so we could deliver it to all the Kickstarter backers. So, yeah, amazing community, especially in this industry. There's just a lot of people that are willing to share and give free advice and, um, you know, design things for free and just to participate in, um, you know, growing this industry. Awesome. So after raising that the $650,000, did you guys just try to get into production mode right away? Like, what, what did you guys use those funds for? Yeah, so we went overseas. <laughs> we flew overseas. I was talking to 50 different manufacturers of products and components, and you know, everyone's wearing a million different hats, and we're trying to put this whole thing together. But we spent uh, quite a bit of time overseas building out our manufacturing, and we worked with a partner that we found. I mean, I'm sure everyone's familiar with Alibaba. If you're listening, if you're not, Alibaba is a great place to go and find products and outsource them. If you want to sell them, you know, what I would always suggest is to go there with your concept and idea, find something similar and utilize, you know, some, you know, find a manufacturer that makes a product similar to what your idea is and kind of utilize them to design your own custom product from there. So we worked with a ton of our manufacturers from Alibaba early on, uh, ended up meeting a guy that wanted to do manufacturing for us that saw our Kickstarter campaign. So we flew over there and set up the whole process. And, you know, it was, we really didn't have a clue what we were doing per se. We just knew we were going to get these products made because we knew we had to deliver them to our Kickstarter backers. 
So it was sort of like a, we'll do anything. I won't sleep for months if I don't have to, you know, we're going to get these things done and we're going to deliver to these people because we made a promise to them to do that. And so the idea of not delivering was not even fathomable by us. We, we knew we were going to do it. So we just went over there, built a manufacturing with this guy pretty much from scratch and, and started getting these machines into production, you know, within about four or five months after that. Awesome. So the, after the Kickstarter campaign, after you guys got these initial orders out the way, what was the, the, the goal to continue to actually build a business around? Like, what was the, the, the traffic and the sales, uh, uh, I guess, uh, strategy that you wanted to put in place? Yeah, so we, he- so we heavily underestimated how much money we would need. I mean, it's a classic example of people that um, you know, start crowdfunding campaigns. Is, and the one thing I would always say and suggest everyone is to think about the amount of time it's going to take you to build the product. Um, because if that takes nine months to a year and the only thing you're selling is, you know, a slight margin on your product, you're not building in the run rate of costs it's going to take, you know, to hire some people if you need them to pay yourself, if you're going full time, just enough to eat top ramen, whatever it may be. So, you know, we had to spend a lot of time actually, once we finished the Kickstarter campaign, launching our website and starting to pre-sell our product with eight month lead times. So we spent a lot of time doing that, and that gave us enough cash flow to actually get the product finally to market. So it was it was interesting. We had a, a lot of issues early on, just from a financial standpoint, bringing this product to market. But um, you know, like I said, we were just nonstop. You know, making sure we we're going to get this awesome. thing going. So you mentioned, I think, in our preview questions that Facebook advertising has been a big uh, sales channel for you. You mentioned you use a lot of social media advertising and preparation for the company and everything. What kind of uh, what kind of strategy do you have on Facebook? What kind of ads are you running? I, so I think the most exciting thing, and I, I feel like a lot of people that do social media advertising or Facebook advertising don't utilize it to the best possible way. I think what's really interesting about it, if, if no one has gone in there and tested it or looked at it, you really should. Um, I always, you know, and anyone that wants to learn anything, I always recommend going to Udemy. It's U-D-E-M-Y.com. Um, really great platform to purchase pretty inexpensive courses to teach you about a multitude of subjects. So I remember doing that early on, buying courses to teach me about Facebook advertising. And it just gave me a lot of the knowledge that then I grew upon. But Uh, You can go in there and you can filter to people that, I mean, essentially at the end of the day, if you filter down to a guy that's an engineering student at San Diego State University and, you know, you can keep going further than that. And then I create content for the ad that says, like, check out our 3D printer built for engineering students. And then I say you get 10% off using discount code STSU engineer. What, what's ended up happening is this STSU engineer is looking at my ad. He doesn't know I know about him, really. And it's almost like I'm speaking to him personally. And so that ability to influence people because you know more information than, than they know you know has <laughs> really been kind of the art and creativity and exciting part to me about this advertising. That, that yeah, I like that that approach a lot, and I've started to see it more a little bit more on Facebook, where people will, will try to sell things like merchandise based on your first name, or sell you merchandise ba- based on your birth month, and try to make it seem like they know a lot about you, like you're saying. Yeah, I think one of the difficult things about this approach is scaling it up, right? How do you get this to scale when you're trying to create such personalized advertising? How have you uh, how have you handled this this uh, I guess issue? 
Yeah, I, I've had to do, I mean, I've had at one point running 260 different ads. Wow. So you just, you have to focus a lot and, you know, set smaller scale budgets and, you know, just make sure you're on top of it. I mean, I would say early on, just going to sort of niche areas to just get a feel for what works and what does, doesn't work is really the way, the route to take. Um, so you start kind of scaling down into smaller audiences, you know, 10,000 people audiences. And for those of you that have never used Facebook advertising, this may be confusing, but if you get in there and kind of start looking at how you can filter people down and how you can choose different types of demographics, you'll start to see the audience um, size kind of decrease. So I would always say start with these small scale audiences. And then once you find something that works, then scale it up. And Facebook has a lot of tools that allow you to do this. You can create things like lookalike audiences that, you know, based off ones that have already worked and you can do some cool stuff. Nice. So you also mentioned that you ran or you were running video ads at least during the uh, the Kickstarter and the, the, the initial phases. Are you guys still using video ads a lot? Yeah, we, we're actually building a whole video content strategy um, for advertising this year, which is going to be really exciting. I, you know, we're in an industry, you know, 3D printing is still somewhat confusing to, to the masses on what they would use it for. So what we're trying to do is really focus on approachable ways for people to understand how they would fit 3D printing into their lives and build video content around that. Um, follow a lot of the trends. I'm sure you guys have seen like the BuzzFeed style videos and these really trendy kind of videos that end up going viral. So kind of follow along these trends, um, you know, kind of the look and feel, the big text overlays and things like that and just building content that helps people understand how to use our product. Mm, especially a product like this that is technical, I think it is important to show it in action. Uh, and do you, when you run these video ads, do, do you focus on trying to get the customer, or the visit, uh, the uh, the viewer, to convert right away to come over to your site, or do you have to typically follow up with more, maybe conversion focused ads to drive them to check out the product? Yeah, so I think I do a, a little bit of both. I mean, we so I do ads to, so I have. Now that I've done so many of them, I've accumulated so much data on them. So there's people, there's ads groups that I target that that do convert very well. So when we have sales and things like that, you know, I send that to that group, like certain specials we have going on, or I give them discount codes and I um, target them. But there's also some ads I do, video ads, where I just want people to start talking. So, you know, I ask questions in the ad, like, tell me what you're 3D printing this week. And I target people that own 3D printers of multitude of different categories um, just because I want to create this dialogue and I want to start accumulating some level of data and engagement with our brand. And so I, I think I use a multitude of approaches there, but I really just want to get people to see who we are, talk about what we're doing, um, talk about the industry in general and what 3D printing, you know, I, it's amazing. I just did this ad and I have like 80 something comments and pictures of people that are literally uploading pictures of things they're 3D printing right now. It's just this huge thread that's going, and it's just really cool. So it's growing the industry itself. So I think there's a side of me that wants to grow the industry also, and a side that obviously you know wants to grow our business. Mm. Yeah, and, and when you look at videos, uh, product videos specifically, there's kind of, a, I guess, two different uh, approaches to it. One is more the educational route where you show how it works, you show about the features and everything. And then there's the other angle, which I think is more like enter entertainment related, how to get it to go viral, get it to a lot of people to talk about it. How do you decide which kind of content to be to create? Like, How do you know which one works better? Uh, I, I, a lot of it was just trial and error early on. Um, like I said, I've, you know, I was able to 
you know, a lot of it, I think, started out being sales focused. So I was able to build audiences that worked from a sales standpoint. Um, and, you know, you if you sit, you have to set up like these pixels on your Shopify site, which we have um, that allow you to track sales from ads. And so I'm able to see kind of which ads have generated the most revenue and what groups have generated the most revenue now. Um, but it started out really not with nothing, right? I had a blank slate. I was just targeting people that followed my competitors and targeting people that were interested in 3D printing or followed different 3D um, blogs and things like that. And that was giving me some data that was working. And then I just kept building from there. And then now that I'm kind of becoming more sophisticated in it, now I'm starting to realize, well, I can use this in a multitude of ways to just help gain awareness about the industry as a whole, because I want that to grow because I know how cool the technology is. And, you know, I, I can, I can do it just to create sharing and engagement and excitement. Um, so I, I it, it's, I guess it just, it all started out with zero and, um, you know, I just kept track of all my data in there and Facebook does a really good job of allowing you to do that. Um, they allow you to filter it out. They allow you to see all the data. You can kind of change what metrics you want to see. It's, I mean, it's really fun when mm-hmm. you dive into it and start seeing that. Now, now, if you were to launch a new product into the into the marketplace using Facebook, and especially if a product that that is like yours as a hardware uh, and kind of technical product, would you focus more on the educational or entertainment angle? How do you? What kind of uh, I guess theme would you would you say you'd want to focus on when you're creating a video ad? Yeah, I think you know what I think it really depends on the product. I mean, ours has to have such a high level of. Um, you know, education to actually get people that aren't in the industry looking at it and understanding what it is and why they would want it. So, you know, when I'm currently targeting people that, you know, from an educational perspective, it's to get, it's people that may not necessarily know they want a 3d printer yet. Mm -hmm. So that's where a lot of my targeting goes to. Um, if I was to start a new product, I, Honestly, I can think about this a lot. I'm like, what would I do next, right? Or what am I going to do next beyond this? And I almost have this weird strategy that I would, you know, and I hate to say this per se, but I would like think about obviously something that excites me, you know, I'm passionate about, but also like what level of targeting I can do and what product mm-hmm. could I potentially be really successful at with that, with my knowledge of targeting. Because um, I think there's certain things if you do this backdoor approach i think you can have a lot of success yeah i totally agree i think uh, a lot of times we we go the more typical route which is the way you described it what am i passionate about what am i interested in most but we i think to make it your sometimes your job easier you look at what distribution is available right not just distribution of the product but how how can you easily get the word out about the product that you're going after if it's easy to do if it's targetable like you're saying then it's going to make your job a lot easier a lot of times we don't think about that until much later after the product already exists then you start thinking about okay how do I get people to to learn about this and sometimes when you figure it out right from the, the beginning or maybe have like a filter criteria in your mind about how, how easy you want it to be distributed then I think that makes your job a lot easier when you're launching a yeah. new product most definitely I agree 100% yeah mm-hmm. Now, any 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 thoughts or any tips on? I think this whole video ad thing is, is awesome because I think it's a it's a new grounds like you're talking about. A lot of people are maybe just trying out for the first time. Any thoughts on like the length of a video ad? Uh, you know, you know, and speaking on this too, just the category as all. Well, I mean, it's going it's already changing, right? So when I first started doing video ads, like 
I already am kind of seeing more people do it now. And what's going to end up happening is going to cost a lot more. It's going to be less effective because and anyone that's starting a company, I mean, you're really, you're competing for attention of people in general. So it's not that, I mean, it's a noisy world and it's no longer just like, Hey, I'm competing with my direct competitor. You're just competing to capture the attention of someone long enough to tell them what you're doing. So if it's not exciting enough, and I mean, people have a million things to do and now they're tied to their phones and they're connecting with their friends. So it's gotta be something that grabs them. So I always suggest in terms of length of video to keep it short and sweet, high energy and extremely great visuals, something that can pull them in, you know, very quickly, right from the start. Don't lag. I mean, it's amazing how even like the smallest lag in a video can cause someone just to scroll. I mean, it's so easy just to scroll, right? We can just do it in a, in a second. And that's that, you know, you got to look at your video, put yourself to the side, the video that you're creating, even when you're talking about Kickstarter and crowdfunding videos, put yourself to the side or ask people and be like, is there even a half a second or a couple seconds where this lags and is boring? Because that's going to severely affect people watching the entirety of your video. And you may have some great information you want them to get to that they won't make it to because the video isn't engaging enough. Yeah, and I've never run a, a Facebook video ad, but are you able to see how long people are watching a video for to like how many seconds into the video before they, they I guess, leave? Yeah, you can see three second, 15 second, 30. I mean, you can see all the way to they finish the entirety of the video. So you can see where people started dropping off. And if you actually do this a lot, you can actually go into your video and go, wow, I understand. I mean, you can see why people dropped off in certain spots. And you can do like a quick re-edit of your video and and relaunch it under that under those same or to those same people and see if that changes it at all. I mean, it's really like an art uh, to to get this working and to you know find avenues that end up creating sales or creating leads or whatever you want it to be. Definitely. Now, do you uh, hire out for these videos or is it all done in house? Uh, we do. So this year we're going to be hiring out some of it because we actually have some funding. We early on, we did some in house. Uh, you know, we created these, uh, you know, I hired some guys some videography students and they came and we created some cool fun videos, um, early on. So that's always a way to do it. If you're low and limited on resources and there's plenty, I just went back to my college and I said, Hey, this cool summer internship program. We're going to create some badass videos around 3d printing, right? <laughs> Who wants to who wants to be a part of that? And I got a couple of guys that wanted to come and do that, so we built some some fun videos. But this year we'll create some more professional videos. Um, and also, I'm gonna I'm gonna start testing some really raw videos. Um, you know, some done on a smartphone with me talking to the camera and showing the 3D printer in action. I want to see how those convert because I think people like that real personal feel and vibe too when they're watching. Um, you know, these these video ads. Yeah, I think there's definitely some value in making a, an ad look as native or as organic as possible because sometimes when I when someone does it really well and I'm scrolling through my Facebook feed and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm watching this entire video and then I'm like, damn it, they got me. This was an ad the whole yeah. time, but it was so organic that, that it sucked me right in. So I think that there is definitely value in making it as raw, like you're saying, as possible. Um, now, I want to talk about something else that you mentioned in the pre-interview questions, which is sales timers that were that are effective for you for for I guess for sales. Now tell me, tell us a more about this. Like, what are sale timers? Yeah, this has been extremely effective for us, and you know, it's in, not in a way that we are trying to deceive anyone. It's really just we do a lot of these kind of like flash sales on our website, and we always build out these sort of timers at the top. 
So these banner sort of images at the top that says like, you know, bundle specials for 24 hours with a timer that, uh, for the, for the next 24 hours. And, um, it just increases the level of interest in getting your products quicker than later. So we're able to convert a lot of sales around the times when we have these, these timers and these specials or these deals. Um, so for our, for our product, it works extremely well for other products that might not work that well, but it's something to definitely test and try. And I think just looking at all the different stuff we've, you know, all the apps we've put on from our Shopify store and tried and tested, um, this is one that's worked really well for us. Yeah, I think urgency is a, is a is something that a lot of people miss out on when they are designing their marketing because sometimes you have to force people to make a decision. It's not like you're making them buy something that they wouldn't buy already, but sometimes people you know take a while to make a decision by having this countdown like you're talking about. It forces that that decision making, and and that's sometimes a difference between them buying now or buying later. Maybe not. Maybe they'll forget about buying it altogether if they don't buy immediately. And a lot of them are done. A lot of them are done with products that either. You know, we're waiting, we're, you know, our new inventory is coming in. So we want to get rid of some of this inventory. So we do these flash sales. So we do it um, very strategic to get us into a point when our new inventory comes in that we're kind of released of our old inventory. We got our new stuff in and now we can continue to cycle. And then we, you know, once we get low on that, we kind of push them through. And so it's just all, it's all based on kind of the different products we have, the different um, supply we have at the time. And we, we have a lot of fun with it. We do these really fun you know, titled bundles and things like that. And people love it. And, you know, they end up doing really well with those timers. And do, are you always running some kind of timer? Not always. So we, I, you know, I test a lot of different things. Like right now, if you go on the, the robo3d.com site, you'll see like a thing at the top that we have a couple bundle deals. So there's no timer on that. So I'm just running that through. Um, so I, I do a little bit of everything and see what works and what doesn't work. And I've, I change colors of the banner a lot to see what color attracts more clicks. And um, so I spent a lot of, a lot of time, you know, messing around with certain things to see what works and what doesn't work. And, and that's a lot of fun for me. Um, you know, if that's not something that people like to do, you know, hire that out or find a freelancer that likes to do that because you can, you can have a lot of success just finding what actually does work. A lot of people are literally a button away from something mm -hmm. working 10 times better than, you know, what they currently have. Right. And do you find that, have you found that having a countdown timer too often, could that be a bad thing? Like how, how often do you think that, do you think that there's a threshold for that? No question. Yeah. I feel, I, you know, we, if, especially if you have a lot of repeat people on your site, if you always have a timer going on, um, you know, they're going to probably lose interest in that pretty quickly or they're not going to take it as seriously. So, you know, we space ours out quite a bit when we do do them. But we always know like, hey, when we're coming in at the month's end and, you know, we have some inventory we need to push out. We know like we kind of have that backup plan. Like, hey, we can we can put this deal out, this kind of flash deal with the timer. And we know it's going to generate a decent amount of sales, especially with some of the advertising groups that we have that, you know, we can reach out to to generate sales. Nice. And can you give us the, the, the app or software that you use for this? Uh, so we actually hard coded all those in um, the ones we have on the site now. Oh, nice. Um, I, I'm trying to think which one I know there is some, um, apps in Shopify that do, um, timers and deals on the, the website. Um, but the one we have, we actually hard coded in 
ourselves. Cool. Yeah. So you, you mentioned something, um, I think in maybe the email you sent over to me, which was that this wasn't always uh, all fun and games that you ran out of money or almost ran out of money. I'm not sure which, which one was it multiple times had minor recalls of the product. Uh, what, what happened? What happened in these situations? Yeah. I mean, we, it, it's, it hasn't been obviously easy, but uh, I always say, you know, people are like, you have the, like, the American dream. I was like, this was not, this was the dream, the perseverance dream um, to get us through what we went through. But, you know, we, we ran out of money quite a number of times actually. And, you know, one of the times, the first times was I was in New York for a trade show. I was attending by myself to promote our products. And, you know, my business partner called me and they talked about how we can't pay payroll. And so I just spent probably the, all the way up until two, three in the morning, contacting international distributors, kind of poaching from competitor sites and reaching out to people that, you know, were carrying 3D printing products and ended up getting an order that was able to pay our payroll for two weeks. And so, you know, we just, we worked through these issues early on and we, you know, raised some money to help finance inventory, which was huge for us um, early on because we didn't want to give equity away um, in, in the early stages. So we had to find ways to purchase our inventory. Our inventory cost a lot. Um, and then we, we had one minor recall where some of the wires that we were using were defective. And so we had to basically, it was about a hundred machines we had to get back and replace and send back out, which cost us a lot of money. And it's just all these things that, you know, you kind of go through. And that's why when I'm always talking to, you know, people that want to start companies, entrepreneurs, things like that, is if you're not like super passionate and excited about what you're doing, these are the things that will drive you down to the point of potentially you know, leaving your, what could have been a great business opportunity or idea. Definitely. And the, you said the minor recall, what, what happened there? Uh, it was just honestly, a, you know, we had so many different manufacturers of supplies that were being sent to our assembly house. Um, and we got a batch of wires that were just defective. And um, those, those actual wires were not allowed. They basically weren't, we had this thing called a heating platform. They weren't heating up the heated platform. And a lot of people bought the printer because 3D printer because it did that because that way you can use certain materials. And so we got a lot of upset customers and we just handled it, you know, with our customer service. We said, listen, if anyone responds to this, this is the process. Send them a shipping label, have them ship it back. We'll replace it and we'll send it back to them, you know, with the quickest turnaround time possible. And we just worked through that kind of day by day and we were all pitching in and helping out and, you know, those, we just didn't let those issues. We knew there was going to be issues, and we just didn't let those stop what we were, you know, trying to do. Awesome. Now, can you give us an idea of how successful the business is today after going through all of these these uh, almost running out of money, and then this this minor product recall? Like, how successful is the business today? Yeah, we're at a really good stage. I mean, we just we just actually launched our. So we've only been selling pretty much one machine the past three years, um, a year to develop it, and then two years, and now. During those two years, we started developing our two new products. So we just closed our year at about, I think it was about 4.7 million. So that, that's been amazing just on the one product. And now, you know, we're obviously expecting to grow significantly more with our new products. Um, we're going to have a multitude of machines out on the market. We're going to have new materials. We have a lot of stuff that we're, um, you know, that are in the works and that we're, we're launching. So it's exciting. Nice. So new products coming out. Where else do you want to see the company be in the next year? Uh, you know, I... I'm really fascinated around the accumulation of data, um, which sounds so nerdy and techy, but uh, I love, I, I want to be able to capture what people are using the product for and 
you know, I want to be, there's, I have this concept and this thought that we can build a proactive customer service company as well, which I think would be really cool if we can find out that machines are stopping at certain times and we can track that serial code and we can reach out to them and say, Hey, we noticed your machine didn't finish. Is there an issue? Um, you know, I really want to have that level of proactivity from a customer service side to help our customers. Um, but I also want to be able to see what they're using the product for, not by a case by case basis, not to, from a privacy issue, but um, just to accumulate data so we can understand and better serve content to people. Cause if a lot of people are making, you know, uh, iPhone cases and we can design, you know, we can have a team of people that are designing iPhone, cool iPhone case designs and delivering that to people, you know, via their smartphone with our mobile app or, you know, on our actual um, 3D printer, we have basically a computer so we can send files and an update to people. So we can do some fun stuff um, when we actually find and accumulate what people are using the product for. Nice. So sounds like a very exciting uh, 2017 coming up. Thanks yeah. so much again for your time, Braden. So Robo3D.com, again, is a website. Where else should uh, listeners check out if they want to follow along with what you guys are up to, what you're up to? Yeah, check us out, Robo3D.com. Uh, you can follow me, Braden Moreno, on all the Instagram channels. Um, you know, I post a lot about our company and what we're doing. Um, you know, LinkedIn, any of those as well. We're all over social media. So Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, all of it. Awesome. Thanks again so much for your time, Braden. Yeah, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Here's a sneak peek of what's in store for the next Shopify Masters episode. You have to help that, that retailer move products off the shelf. And so one of the big tactics that we use and, and where we spend most of our marketing budget is on specific demographic info of who is in that community, where is a Walmart store or a Target store. Based on demographic info, this person is more likely or less likely to go to a Target or a Walmart, and we're going to show them ads that drive them in-store. And we can actually track it. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.